Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together on your Shabbat day, to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy a, a laugh, to enjoy a smile, and Lord, at the same time, to enjoy your love and find out how we can grow closer to you. Lord, we grow closer to you by praying your scriptures in the liturgy. We grow closer to you by worshiping your scriptures back to you in song. And Lord, we look real closer to you, believe it or not, by giving. And Lord, I just pray that anything that's heard today, no matter what comes out of my mouth this morning, what is heard may be what brings people closer to you. May Messiah pray these things. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So this week's going to be a little bit different. Normally, I, you know, I like to teach on the parasha that we read this morning, right? This morning we read from Parashat, parashat Matot. Because if you look, we had the Parashat Matot Masay in your bulletin, right? I'll let you in on a secret. The rest of the world reading scriptures, reading the Torah portion, was just doing Masay this morning because we did a holiday service on a day where the holiday was in the middle of the week and threw our schedule off. This week, we're back on the schedule that everyone else is on. So, so I, I did the teaching today from the second half, which was going to be the only portion that anybody else read. Have I confused you already? Okay, I didn't think so. I thought that was pretty... Now, this may confuse you. How many of you celebrate Boxing Day? Anyone? Who knows what Boxing Day is? December 26th, right. December 26th is the day after Christmas. I'm going to use the word Christmas today. Don't throw rocks at me. Anyway, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day is not the day that you take all the boxes and wrapping paper and put it out on the curb to get rid of it. Boxing Day is not the day that everybody's recovering from all the drinking on the Christmas party the night before and they have fights. Boxing Day is the day that originated actually around the 1300s in England. Uh, it was a day to give back to the people who were public servants. Uh, it, there's a couple theories on how it started. One is that the lord of the manor, who basically everybody in the town worked for, would all be together on Christmas Day, and that was a good day to give out their, their yearly stipends for necessities because basically everything you had he owned. And so he'd give you your, your clothes and your food allowance and stuff like that on the day after Christmas. It's easier than hunting people all down all over the place when they're all together on Christmas Day. Um, there eventually became a tradition of putting together boxes for servants. Servants would usually get the day off on the 26th because they worked on Christmas Day because their masters would have all these great feasts and things. So they'd get, they'd get the day off and their master would give them a little box of you know, some extra cash or some presents. And eventually what happens is public servants, like the mailman, how many of you tip the mailman around Christmas? Really? That nobody else? What awful people you are. Anyway, the tipping the mailman around Christmas time, tipping, giving the newsboy an extra couple, the paper, we don't have paper boys anymore. When we used to have paper boys, we would give them a little extra money around Christmas for bringing the newspaper and not throwing it through the window. And if you didn't give him a tip, it would come through the window or land in the gutter or the fountain or something. And so you just knew that ahead of time. Ah, 
But I'll I'll tell you a little story about Boxing Day. Now that you have a background to know what Boxing Day is, I can tell you a story about Boxing Day. There was a story about a little boy, and he begged and begged his mother for years for a specific toy train that he wanted. Now, he started when he was about two, because he was only about four when this happened. But he finally got his perfect little toy train for Christmas Day. He gets his toy train. He's so happy. He loves it. It's his favorite thing in the world. He plays with it every day for a month. Six hours a day, he's playing with his little train, rolling it back and forth across the floor. He sleeps with it at night. He gets bruises on his face from sleeping with his train at night. After a month, you know, he starts playing with a little less than six hours a day. Maybe just pulls it out of it and rolls it around for a while and still plays his games, but not quite as much as he did before. Eventually, he plays with it sometimes, but he plays with other toys more. And eventually, he just kind of, it stayed on the shelf most of the time. And then eventually, it stayed on the shelf all the time. And he never played with them because he had other toys to play with. Finally, mom notices it hasn't moved from its shelf in over a year. So she takes it down, and when Boxing Day comes around, she puts it in the box and donates it to charity. Little boy, around about February or so, notices that it's gone, and he's heartbroken. Oh, mom, mom, that was my favorite. I love that toy. Mom stands there and she looks at him. She asks him, what color were the engineer's pants on your train? He says, he thinks, he says, oh, I know, engineers. He wore blue pants. Mom says, nope, it was Donald Duck. He didn't wear pants. You haven't even looked at it in over a year. So I gave it to somebody who maybe doesn't have so many toys that they'll you know, forget one they used to love so much. Believe it or not, that does tie in with Parshat Matot. When Parshat Masay, I'm sorry. Even I'm confusing myself. My wife will tell you that's not that unusual. In Genesis 15, 18 through 21, Abraham and his descendants were promised a great gift. Adonai promised Abraham that he was to be the, his was to be the land of ten whole nations. You can look up there and you can see well, you can't really see them very clearly, but you've got the uh, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, which some maps, they're, they're, when the Hittite Empire was at its height, they were actually most of Tur- what's now Turkey and all around the upper point of the Mediterranean there. Uh, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Do we have any Jebusites here? Yeah, we don't have any of these people. They're all gone. I just wanted to make sure, though, because every once in a while I, I make that joke and there's a Jebusite, and I just, there aren't really any Jebusites. I'm, most, now, the borders that he gave him, and if you look at this map, you can see the river of Egypt is the Wadi al-Ashir, uh, Wadi is that the name of it? And it goes up to the Euphrates River up there. That's a pretty conservative estimate of what God promised. It's still huge for one guy and his family. But it's a pretty conservative estimate of that, what that promise is. 
Most scholars take a much more generous view of the terms river of Egypt. They figure that means the Nile, not the river that once you cross here in Egypt. And the great river Euphrates, uh, they basically take the entire river. And they lead to a map that looks more like this. That's much bigger. So I'll mention that later. In Parashat Masay specifically, Numbers 34, 1 through 21, you all read that, right? You read the whole, we really had like six or eight chapters to read this week. So you read it? You're the good one. We're given much more specific landmarks for the land that God promises through Moses to give to Israel. It's extremely, specific landmarks are extremely useful for making maps, aren't they? Now, the fact that nobody's sure where some of these landmarks are doesn't help a whole lot. But this map shows a pretty good idea of what was promised to Israel through Moses. You can see, while it's still pretty substantial, uh, it goes all the way up through see most of Lebanon, a chunk of Syria, down into the Sinai. Um, it's still a lot, lot less than Abraham was promised. Even with that conservative estimate, it's less. Uh, there are a couple reasons for this. First off, uh, some of Abraham's promised territory was given to other descendants of Abraham, like Edom, which was, well, you can see land of Edom down there, and it's actually more over to the, the east of there also, that whole, I should have brought a pointer, and I didn't. And that whole area up there, which doesn't do any good because you can't see the same angle I am. A big blob down there was Edom. And then... Uh, in, num- in Numbers here, they form part of Israel's border. Uh, second, according to rabbinic sources, some of Abraham's promise was given to Lot. Does that surprise you? And the reason is because Lot didn't betray his brother to the king when honest Abe was pretending that his wife was just his sister. That land eventually became the nations of Ammon and Moab. Uh, for reasons that if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah become pretty apparent. Oh, Steve is bringing a pointer. Steve, Steve is my favorite person now. You've all just lost points. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so Edom, you can see it here. It actually covered most of this area here. If I'm, I'm not sure. I believe some Seir is right in this range. I think it's in this range over here. Uh, Ammon, Moab was over here, and Ammon is up here. So that land was part of what was promised to Abraham, in numbers, it was not included because it was given to Lot's family. Finally, uh, the, the fact that Israel didn't just trust Adonai, and you know, when the famine in the famine in Canaan came, they went down to Egypt instead of staying in the land that was promised to them, and so they lost some of their land. Um, probably wouldn't have been so bad if, when they came up from Egypt they had immediately gone in and taken the land that God had promised them. But they didn't. And so God says, your faith isn't good enough. We're going to cut some of this land out. And so we were left with this. It's temporarily reduced to the borders you see here. Um, so you can see that they aren't too far off from the modern state of Israel. I mean, they're still bigger. Israel stops here. And so this is all Lebanon now and chunk of Syria. Uh, the Golan Heights, that's actually part of Syria now. 
And it didn't include this down here, down to a lot. A lot, which is actually off the map down here, is important because it's a seaport. The rest of that is all desert that you can't do anything with anyway, so nobody cares who owns it. Well, they care because they don't want Israel to have anything. Now, of course, in the Messianic kingdom, we're going to know the true boundaries of what was promised to Abraham because the land will physically belong to God's people. Uh, There's been some debate. I I know where, where, as congregation, I know where we stand on this debate. There's some debate on whether the promised land will be given to to, the Jews or to all people who are in relationship with God, meaning the Christians also. The trouble with that is, even if we just count the recognized Jews in the world today, the most generous interpretation there that included that whole huge swath of land uh, would amount to about two and a half acres per person. A little over ten acres per family, depending on the size of your family. That's just enough to provide for one family's needs as long as the produce is supernaturally bountiful. Normally it takes 40 or 50 acres to actually provide for a small family. Uh, so if the land's providing four to, four to eight times as much as it normally would, well, then you could fit all those people and they could feed themselves on that land. That's a huge gift. Even the smaller one was a huge gift for Israel. And Israel was given this huge gift, and they really wanted it. It was their Donald Duck toy train. When Abraham left Ur, it was because God had promised to make him into a great nation. Now the Lord had said unto Avram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. Oh, and, and Abraham's great faith, too, yeah. Uh, but you have to admit, the, the whole nation thing was certainly part of why he decided to leave. Maybe I'm being overly cynical there. I don't think so. Not looking at the rest of Abraham's history. Now, after 400 years of slavery, when Israel was, you know, slaving away and building the cities of Pitom and Ramses, Israel was aching for land of their own some place where they could have no other master than the Lord. They begged and they pleaded for that land. And finally, when the time was right, when the symbolic Christmas had arrived, they got it. And they were never more grateful nor more happy. And when they first got the land, they loved it. They kept God's commandments faithfully the land of milk and honey. They charged in strong to take it until they decided that was good enough and they just sort of left the rest alone. When God said, drive out all these other people, otherwise they'll become a snare to you and lead you away from me. And they said, you know, my my back hurts. I'm tired. We we drove most of the people out and we got some good land. I'm just, I'm tired. Let's, Let's just call it a day. Maybe we'll get back to driving them out next year. And they never did. And what did those other people do that got left in the land? They drew Israel away from Adonai. 
when they settled there, they loved the Lord and they loved the Adonai who was given to them. But they loved him a little longer than that little boy loved his train. I'm going to throw some dates at you now. You don't have to do all the math. Just trust me. This is simple math. Even I can't screw it up too much. Now, if we take the Exodus at around 1500 B.C., which is the most common theological date for the Exodus, archaeologists move it around by as much as a 1,000 years either way, uh, that would put the conquest of Israel about 1450 B.C., 1450, after 40 years. Now, we know that Joshua 14.7 tells us that Joshua was 40 years old when he spied out the land. Uh, 40 years wandering then, that'd make him about 80 years old. And he died at 110, according to Joshua 24, 29. So he had about 30 years of keeping Israel in line and being the, 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 uh, leader that showed people how to worship Adonai. You know, before he died and the time of the judges began. You all know that story, right? We're going to move on to a story that most of you probably know, but some of you may have not remembered. Uh, King Josiah. I'm, yeah, Yoshia, but we're going to call him Josiah because it's just easier. He reigned approximately 641 to 610 B.C. Again, give or take a year, depending on which source you're looking at. In 2 Kings 22, 10 10 and 11, it says, And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. There's some debate on what the book was that he showed him. Most people think that it was the entire Torah, that had just been forgotten since the time of Joshua sitting in a closet in the tabernacle. And eventually got moved to the temple, but nobody looked at it. Just another artifact. Uh, How many of you have heard of the documentary hypothesis of the Torah? The one that says that there there were several different old texts, the J text, the E text, uh, the, I forget what the one, about the guy who put it all together. Anyway, there are four or five different texts that were all put together by this one guy, possibly Ezra, after the Babylonian exile. Um, personally, I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't think anybody, most of the people here do. But it's out there, and they will tell you that what he found was probably the book of Deuteronomy. Again, it's possible. I'm not agreeing with it, but I'm not going to say it's absolutely false either. Anyway, moving on to Second Kings 23, 21 to 23 after having read the book of the law now. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor all the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was holding to the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay. Josiah reigned 641 to 610. See, 641 plus 18 years. He's 623. 
And Joseph's ownership later then, see 1450 plus 30, say 1420 BC, that leads to around about 800 years or so that Israel never noticed their train was gone. They failed to keep God's law because they never even noticed it wasn't there. They just followed the... They, I'm sure they, they kept a good amount of the traditions. But they couldn't keep the entire law because they didn't know the entire law. Now during Josiah's reign, after he had brought the Torah back to the people, Israel regained their love for Hashem's ways. And they received much blessing because of this. You know, you'd think that having seen the difference between how well Israel prospered under good kings and how poorly they fared under bad kings, the royal answer eventually figured out what was good for them personally was to follow the Lord, right? Now, having looked at, you know, you, you all are pretty familiar with Old Testament history, right? Was that the case? Did they ever figure that out? If I remember right, there, there are two kings who were good kings, and their fathers were also good kings. The rest, the rest, yeah. Uh, in fact, we have a list of the good, the good kings were David, who ruled the United Kingdom of, the whole big kingdom of Israel. And then Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those seven were the seven good kings of Israel and of the combined kingdom or of Judah. Seven. Now you'd always think that, you know, it's so hard to memorize which ones are good kings, which ones. Memorize these seven, the rest were mostly bad. That makes it easy, doesn't it? Believe it or not, that's what they teach you in seminary. You don't need to know all the names of the other ones. If it's not one of those, it's bad. I want you to notice something else up here. Where is Josiah on this list? He's the very last one. That's not just because it's my list. That's the chronological order of them. But Second Kings says the feasts were not held during all the time of the judges or the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Now, these were all good kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But they didn't keep the feasts. They didn't keep the minutiae of the Torah. It's just a little side note to remember. Uh, next time you feel like somebody isn't really following God if they're not keeping Pesach instead of Easter, or Hanukkah instead of Christmas, you know, Apparently, neither did David. Now, I'm not going to say that it's that if you know the difference, it's better to go with the other one. If you know better, do what's right. But you can still serve the Lord not knowing better. Now, I should backtrack a little bit here. There were three kings who did right in their youth and then did evil when they got old. Uh, those were Solomon, because I heard somebody mentioning Solomon should be up there. Uh, Joash, who also called Jehoash, and Amaziah, whom I don't really even remember. But he did right when he was young and then not so good when he was older. Uh, the other 32 kings were all bad. Now I realize this is a little, this next slide is going to be a little hard to read, 
because there's so many bad kings, they're hard to get big enough to fit on the slide. The northern kingdom, by the way, never had a righteous king who did right in the eye of the Lord. Never. There was Jehu who was not too bad. Uh, but the rest were just all stinkers. You'll find some famous names you recognize. Uh, Ahab, uh, Rehoboam, Ahaz. All the famous bad guys from the, from the kings are on that list. So seven out of 42 kings, if you're up for the math, that's about 16 and two-thirds percent, were good. Actually, I'm thinking that considering our, our history in this country, that's actually a pretty good ratio. Uh, it also seems to gel pretty well with Israel's history, doesn't it? About 16% of the time they were doing okay, and the rest of the time they were just irritating God no end. That's not the word that almost came out of my mouth. Now we're not done here. I want to say we're not done with the gifts that get ignored and taken for granted. Let's take a quick look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You all know this one. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is that, or is that not, the most precious gift you could ever receive? Better, better than the best toy train ever. Better, is it better than divinely blessed real estate? Oh, yeah. How could we ever risk losing that gift? Let me tell you something. I'm going to let you know a little secret that wasn't obvious in that story. When mom took that toy away, she didn't immediately donate it. You remember, it took a while for Boxing Day to come around. From the time she took it off the shelf, she kept it safe. Safe for that little boy who loved it at one point. Until that coming Boxing Day, when it was too late to redeem it. All the little boy had to do was ask for it, show her that he still wanted it, still loved it. It would have been back in his possession. When Israel ignored the Lord who had given them the land, they got some curses. But you know what? The land was still there. All they had to do was go to the Father and ask for the blessings. And he would have been overjoyed to restore all of their gifts. Even when they went into exile in Babylon for 70 years, even more so when the Romans exiled the Jews from their land for about 1,800 years, God kept the land for Israel. And when they needed it again, it was theirs. It's theirs now. At least a good part of it. Would you like some good news now? Have I bummed you out enough? As much as that mom loved her son, 
She loved him enough to let him go through the pain of loss to teach him responsibility and make him a better human being. As much as all you parents, you love your children enough to taught them similar lessons, right? Anyone want, you know, when the kid's reaching for some, you know, a hot stove, hot oven, and you know it's going to hurt their hand, but you let them do it anyway because otherwise they'll never learn. It hurts. But you let them go through that because you love them enough to want them the best for them. Adonai loved and still loves Israel more than that. In fact, if we're to believe some of the kind of esoteric and lesser known scriptures, like say John 3.16, he loves the whole world more than that. The mom loved her son enough to suffer through his tears. Adonai loves Israel enough to suffer through his own tears. But he loves the whole world enough to sacrifice his only begotten son. I'm going to get a little personal here. I like most of you. I like all of you sometimes. Most days I like most of you. Um, some of you, I'll admit, I even love more than a strictly professional clergy amount. Because, you know, I, I kind of have to love you because it's my job. My wife, I love so much, I'd willingly trade my life for hers. That just seems like an obvious choice for me. None of you do I love enough to sacrifice one of my children for you. Probably not even that grandchild I don't really like. Is there anyone else who's in a different frame of mind than that regarding the people around you? Your children are so precious. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they are so precious to you that even the ones who aren't great are still worth more than anybody else to you. So aside from those children and grandchildren, what other precious gifts have you received from Hashem? Have you received salvation, a personal relationship with the Creator? And if you haven't, I'm not going to make an altar call and make you walk down at this point. Uh, but, you know, I'd love to chat with you later. Not to throw spiritual laws at you or, you know, sit down and, and make you pray a prayer that you don't really mean, because that happens a lot. But, you know, you, you ask questions and I'll answer the best I know. And then we'll leave it between the Holy Spirit and you to whether you come to salvation. That leads me to a funny side note that if you add up all the people who are saved and all the crusades, like Billy Graham and the Harvest Crusade and all those, you know, everybody in this country has been saved six times. Yeah, society doesn't really bear that out, does it? Have you received spiritual gifts, leadership, hospitality, healing, maybe, discernment? For a more complete study on spiritual gifts, I, you should probably read Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28. 
Fascinating subject, worthy of an entire teaching series, and has been many teaching series before. Not today's topic, but worth mentioning. Have you received a family? Do you have descendants? If you don't have descendants, do you have ancestors that mean something to you? Do you have a job or a calling? Maybe your job isn't yet your calling, but you have that. Raise your hand if you've eaten, slept, or gone home sometime in the last week. Yeah, that's quite a blessing. Apparently, Tina hasn't done any of these things because she's still asleep. I told you I was going to make fun of them while they're sleeping. Do you have life, mother? Do you have laughs, sister? Do you have freedom, brother? Do you have good times, man? You may even have your hair. I, nobody got that joke, did you? That was good stuff and nobody got it. This is because you're all good believers who never watched a musical like hair. She knows it. She's just too, she's too polite to say anything. The point is, you have precious gifts that the Lord has given in order to show that he loves you and he cares for your needs. What do you do with those gifts? What, what is the whole point of this message with its various little stories and articulations and audiovisual presentations? What, what is the whole point? You have these gifts, appreciate them. Care for your body, care for your mind, Care for your soul. Take care of your gifts. Play with your toys more often. Not only will your toys not be taken away and given to someone else who will use them on Boxing Day, you'll likely get more toys. You know, not that greed should be your motive. I'm going to serve the Lord so I can get more stuff. No, that's that's bad. But if you're greedy for more opportunities to serve the Lord, that is the opposite of bad. That that is good. Amen. Believe it or not, that's the end of what I'm going to talk about. You have gifts. There's some truth to the old phrase, use it or lose it. I learned German in high school. How much do you think I get to practice German in Orange County and L.A. County, California? Yeah, I, I speak like six words and three phrases of German. And I was born there. Uh, but, you know, Spanish I speak more because, you know, I grew up, I lived for a while in Santa Ana, and now I, I use Spanish on a fairly regular basis. And so I remember it. I used that gift, so I retained it, and it grew. I didn't use the other gift of learning German, and so it went away. Apply that same mindset to all of the spiritual, physical, and emotional gifts that God has given you. And for God's sake, please do not use me as an example of how to do that. I know you can look at me and say, take care of your body, huh? Yeah, I take that from the fatso with the receding hairline.
Just because you don't do it perfectly doesn't mean you stop trying to do it. That's the whole point of following God's law. We don't keep the law perfectly to attain salvation. We can't do that. But we're grateful enough for the gift of salvation that we do our best to please the one who gave it to us. We're grateful enough for the gifts of our bodies that we try not to destroy them too quickly. We care enough for the gifts of our minds to exercise them every now and then. We care enough for any of the gifts God gives us to exercise them. Now give me an amen if you're going to go out and do that this week. Okay, you're going to do it. You're going to go out and do that very quietly this week. One more time. I've never done this before. One more time. Give me a big, loud one. Okay, I'll let that pass. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Heavenly Father, we come before today grateful for everything that you've given us. Lord, we, our, our desire is to glorify you and to ask for opportunities to use the gifts that you've granted us. Remind us daily, moment by moment, to do the work you've set out for us. Sometimes it's not clear to us, but Lord, make it clear. Direct our paths in a way that we can't help but tell the path you want us on from the path that you don't. And Lord, give us the discipline and the willingness and the motivation to follow that path and not the easier one or the one that we'd rather do. Lord, I lift up these, all these people here today that they may be blessed and protected by you. I ask that protection be extended and that blessing be extended to everybody who sees them and interacts with them in the upcoming weeks, that, that they may see that blessing and protection on them, and they may desire that, and that these people may be given the opportunity to share how to become one of God's people. And Lord, may you, I ask your blessing upon also your people all around the world, the descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Lord, those who don't know that they need to become spiritual descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Japheth, the descendants of Ham, Lord, may everyone in the world see your truth. And Lord, may one of us who are your people be there at the time that you ordain to show them and help them come closer to you. In the name of Messiah, we pray all these things. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.